Welcome back to the PhysioMaths podcast. This month in association with Rehab My Patient, and this is session 79. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast. My name is Jack March and I have the brilliant job of introducing this session uh, following Therapy Live. Um, you may have noticed that we ran a conference. If you were anywhere near social media last week, then um, you probably noticed it. Um, the hashtag absolutely exploded, as did all of the uh, response from the conference. Loads and loads of amazing feedback, so we're absolutely delighted. We hope that people learnt loads and loads. We did have a little bit of a technical problem in the first hour and we are extremely grateful for everyone who stuck with the conference and their patience over that first hour while we fixed it all. Um, and luckily, we got through the rest of the day pretty much unscathed. The sessions that did lose audience in the first hour or so have been made available free on therapistlearning.com, so you can go and find them there. And if you want to access all of the recordings from the whole session, then it's just £50 at therapistlearning.com. That works out at just about 68p a talk, which is a ridiculous bargain uh, for all those talks. About 70 talks on there at the moment, with another couple due to be finished uploading this week. I want to say a huge thank you to all of our speakers, all of our moderators, and of course, all of the sponsors. Far too many to be named individually, but we are extremely grateful for all of their support and helping us to make the whole thing happen. The, the, the Physio Matters team would never have managed to get it done alone, um, and with their assistance, it was a monumental success, and we're absolutely delighted with the whole thing. Finally, from me, before I introduce the session, yes, there are handouts. Head to Twitter, you can find the link on there, and you can go to the Google Drive where we've put them up for download. So this month's podcast is all about rehabilitation. It's taken from Therapy Live, and it was a discussion in the MSKR room, which they had dedicated for the whole day. An absolutely fascinating talk from a number of really good speakers, and there's an introduction for all of those speakers, um, expertly moderated by Emma Salt. So I'll let you get on with the show and see you at the end. start the recording there as well welcome hello to the first session of therapy live in the mskr stream um very exciting and uh, yeah just a, a jam-packed day in store so let's make a start uh first of all i would like to introduce my colleague emma salt who is the mskr associate of co-director on the evidence group uh, she's also a consultant physio and a nice fellow. So who better person to hold this debate and chair this debate about rehabilitation, understanding, funding and delivering it. I will hand over to you, Emma. Many thanks, Alex. So how the session will run is I'm going to do a little bit of an opening on what I perceive as where we're going with rehabilitation um, and that will take about five minutes then I'm going to do a short introduction for the other panellists and each in turn will take it to have their views. Um, at that point we'll open it up to more of a discussion and that's where we'll be uh, looking at some of the questions that hopefully you'll be then listening to start the debate. So uh, first off what is what is rehabilitation? Um, so I had a look up of the definition of this and I found that it was helping someone return to healthy and active lifestyles. So that's great. But how do we actually achieve this? Uh, so 
there are active modalities such as exercise therapy um, and psychosocial approaches. And then there are more passive modalities or adjuncts um, such as taping, manipulation, mobilization, massage, as well as med medicines, etc. Um, and this is all well and good. And uh, some people practice more in one than the other. But if we talk about or focus, I want to focus a bit more on the exercise rehabilitation approach, because of all the adjuncts uh, to physiotherapy or musculoskeletal therapy practice, exercise can perhaps be considered to have one of the more evidence based to support it. Now, um, sometimes it surprises me that when you get patients through, they might have seen by, been seen by other musculoskeletal practitioners. And some, and it would seem that they were only given a very minimal amount of exercise uh, rehabilitation advice. Um, and so on, a, on other occasions, they won't have any at all. And I'm not saying that's happening everywhere because we know that there's good practice or good pockets where some fantastic exercise rehabilitation has been delivered. But it just makes you wonder then why isn't it happening uniformly across across everybody and everywhere? Um, so it just made, made me start thinking about why this could be and I was thinking is this because is it because it's driven by society I mean you only have to open up a magazine and you'll see you know something saying about this inner cell will take away all your musculoskeletal pain or you wear a, wear a device and everything's gone it's you're cured so maybe that society and the media is not helping move us uh, away or towards uh, more active rehabilitation I also wonder whether we could be doing more for our education of our undergraduates. Um, are we selling exercise enough? Are we making it sexy enough to make um, physiotherapists, osteopaths, chiropractors embrace it and have it as more as a fundamental part that they're giving to their patients, the keystone to our, our intervention? Um, so I, d I just don't know. Um, I mean, could it also be, could it be that us as a group of professionals, and I'm particularly thinking around physiotherapy with this, could it be that we're doing ourselves a disservice? You know, if you think about more of the advanced practitioner roles, but, you know, FCPs, consultant physios, etc., there seems to be this expectation that uh, you should be able to have prescribing, injection therapy, etc., etc., and they're all moving to the more passive uh, strategies. And so are we therefore telling the rest of the professions or our own profession that this is what you need to do to be good? Now, some of people may think, well, you're a bit of a hypocrite saying that because, yes, of course, I practice these passive modalities. I do injection therapy. I do. I'm a prescriber. But to be perfectly honest with you, the people that I, I feel I deliver the best quality or most effective care to is the people that I can do it alone on exercise and advice. And I always, always give exercise and advice. So um, caught up in this mix of understanding or misunderstanding about where exercise therapy should lie in musculoskeletal rehabilitation is the patient. And all too often they're told, that they've been seen by one musculoskeletal therapy practitioner and they're told exercise isn't good for their whatever problem. And then they meet another musculoskeletal practice uh, person and they're told the complete opposite. So that's providing a huge amount of inconsistency and contradictory messages. 
So at best, it's confusing and at worst, it's potentially damaging. So finally, thinking about where we're moving forward, we haven't mentioned COVID yet, so moving forward to the brave new world, can we embrace digital health? Because that could lend itself better to how we could function in a new and improved way, putting exercise or active modalities of rehabilitation back into the centre of everything that we do. So I'm keen to discuss this further, um, and I'm sure that my esteemed panellists will be uh, on board with this too, and they have plenty of other things to share with you as well. Um, and with your help as well and your questions, I think together we will hopefully try and find the way forward. So those are my initial thoughts. Um, really here to, really keen to hear your responses. Sarah, you're with us, yep, aren't you? I Let's am. You. So a brief uh, introduction with Sarah. I could tell you loads about Sarah. But the main things I'm going to say is that Sarah is um, Assistant Director for Strategic Communications at the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy. But before this, she's worked um, for two decades in communication, marketing and strategy across commercial, voluntary and health services. Uh, one thing you probably or you might not know about um, Sarah was that she uh, worked, was involved in producing the Michelle, Michelle Obama's press conference and Let's Move. Wow. So uh, without further ado, Sarah, over to you. Okay, thank you for that introduction. So I'm going to cover three things, and, and hopefully in that time, John's um, tech is going to re-emerge magically. Um, I'm going to cover why our time is now, success and what next, and the five policy asks, um, and the five things we can do. And that's because um, I work for the CSP, but as part of that, uh, I am also the co-chair of the Community Rehab Alliance. So the reason our time is now is that there's a major increase in need as the demand now is on top of levels of previous unmet need. There's an increased awareness of the need outside hospitals and the models where resource and measures center on acute needs to change. And the levers of change are listening. So rehab was an issue before COVID. However, COVID pushed it up the agenda. And we're not ready just as one profession or one condition. But within a year, there's more than 30 and growing. So we have an opportunity to think in new ways about how rehab needs can be met, workforce issues addressed, self-management promoted, and a consistent multi-conditions approach. You, we can all make people's right to rehab a reality. So this isn't just a Twitter campaign. Remember that most of policy and campaigning work happens behind the scenes. The aim is to influence the levers of decisions and ensure that these changes, most importantly, have teeth. As an alliance, we've got solutions and credibility, but most important, and without sounding too cliche, we need to be in the room when it happens. And right now, we are. So with ARCOT and BASRAT and other professional bodies and patient organizations, we agreed a consensus around a right to rehab a year ago. And you'll see, actually, the slide's up. Thank you very much. There's actually so many organizations involved. They're not all just, they can't fit on one slide anymore. So, so let's move nicely on to so what's been successful. Well, alliance building, the sheer number of partners and combined influence. We inputted into the Right Care Guidance, published in March in England, and the work around national positioning continues. 
working in partnerships with people like Caroline Poole and the Aging Well program as well. And the influencing work is in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. So culturally, we've moved on from thinking one condition or one profession, and as part of that, reduce the risk of that playing out, which could slow progress. So what next? Grow the alliance, use the alliance, work with the alliance, work collaboratively to influence the NHS and force the system to do things and to measure things. Understand the role of digital and remote and ensure that it's evidence-based. Use the evidence coming through. Reimagining rehab is not about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's about providing excellent rehab for patients to improve people's quality of life, their outcomes, and keep them importantly from the most, oh, unnecessarily and importantly from re-entering the most expensive parts of the system, A&E, acute, GP appointments, and social care. So I'm going to just move us on the next slide, last slide. We've got five asks. One, develop a national strategy for quality rehabilitation, making it an integral part of the healthcare system. Two, expand and modernize rehabilitation services to meet the scale of need, both COVID and non-COVID related, with particular focus on delivering it in the community. Three, grow the multidisciplinary rehabilitation workforce with the right skills and staff needed. Four, learn from the impetus and changes needed to respond to the pandemic and use it to shape the future of rehabilitation. And five, measure the needs and impact of rehabilitation, record the right things. So the final bit that I'm just going to leave you with is, so how can everyone contribute? Well, share your exemplars through the innovations database if you've got them. Keep collecting data and outcomes, including reducing dependency on social care. Promote, share, demand those same consistent asks you can see right now on the slide, alongside many others who are doing this as part of the alliance. Ask your local MP or, or outside of England, your parliamentary representative, to champion people's right to rehab in Parliament. Notify the press office at the CSP or your relevant professional body if you think you have exciting evidence or case stories. So the community rehab problem existed before COVID. It would exist if COVID had never happened. The solutions that we currently adopt are going to be relevant in the post-COVID context, as dreamy as that might sound right now. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah. That's absolutely fantastic. We're going to move straight on to you, Ben. Is that okay? Yep, that's absolutely fine. So I just want to introduce uh, Ben Wilkins. Um, ben is a CEO at Good Boost, which is a social enterprise delivery exercise rehabilitation for musculoskeletal conditions. Um, and they work a lot through artificial intelligence, which is something dear to my heart, uh, using technology. Uh, he's also a musculoskeletal clinical champion for versus arthritis, which is fantastic, and also has a Winston Churchill Fellowship. So fantastic to have you with us, Ben. Over to you. So my real focus um, for the last few years is how do you demedicalize rehabilitation? How do you demedicalize exercise? Because the reality is, is more than 90% of 
the time in rehabilitation is not there with a physiotherapist or a healthcare professional. And if there isn't the motivation or the behaviors so that people will be self-managing, self-led in their activities, then we're all doomed to, doomed to failure because there are not enough healthcare professionals, there are not enough physiotherapists to deliver the needs at the grand scale. Um, the, the state of need for strength and balance training, especially for people over 55, is excessive and growing exponentially. What this means is we're going to see more falls fractures, we're going to see more people deconditioning, we're going to see people entering into health and social care earlier than they need to. And there isn't a one, there isn't a physio for every individual person. So we need to find ways so that people can better self-lead their management of musculoskeletal conditions. So we all get frustrated as, as healthcare professionals in that we tell patients what they do and we expect them to act rationally. And they will go off and they will go and do the exercises, they will do their rehab because we've told them if they don't do it, the bad thing will happen. And if they do do it, the good thing will happen. The thing is, it's not that people don't know better, it's that they don't do better. This isn't a knowledge deficit, it's a behavioural deficit. If we want to change people's behaviours and we're trying to, if, if we want to change people's behaviours, trying to change their mind with information is hard enough. Changing their behaviour is near impossible. So it's how do we create the tools, the systems and environments that people want to do these things? Because ultimately, our competitors for self-led rehabilitation are Netflix, it's Facebook, it's Angry Birds, it's a pint down the pub, because it's people's spare and free time that they'll either self-lead in their activities to better manage their own health, or they'll go and do something like Facebook and social media and play games. That's the screen time we're competing for. That's our competitors. And if we're not offering them appealing options and opportunities they want to engage with, that they want to do, not because they're told to do it, we're all doomed to failure. So thinking in that mindset is how do we remove some of the obstacles? One of those obstacles being friction. And friction is a real thing. And what I mean by that is the number of steps and activities needed to, be, to begin engaging in a rehabilitation program. To give you an example of friction, so when Amazon in, introduced the one-click buy option, they associated almost $300 million of revenue that year because they went from five click, clicks down to one click. Friction is a real thing, $300 million of revenue because they reduce friction. Another example of Deliveroo. When Deliveroo launched, on average, what they were charging for their, for their delivery of takeaways were about one to two pounds cheaper than going to a restaurant. But in the same two year period from 2017 to 2019, Deliveroo grew by 6%, sorry, takeaways grew by 6%, whereas restaurants grew by 1% because friction was removed from that experience. Friction is a real thing. And if there are multiple steps needed to get to your supported rehabilitation, people will not engage because when we live in a fast paced economy of instant access to everything, the moment there's friction, people will not take part. So that's one element. The other is digital. And I think digital can offer a, a huge support here. But there's another challenge with digital is that health apps aren't new. Around 20% of phones around the planet have a health app installed on them, and yet this has not been the panacea. We have not seen the silver bullet through digital technologies in overcoming our health challenges. And that's because these devices, these technologies, these apps still rely on a behavior and a habit and a relationship. And people generally don't form relationships with technology. When they do, it's because that technology is something social about human connection. The most downloaded apps on any phone, Facebook, TikTok, 
Messenger, WhatsApp, um, Instagram. And the reason for them is they facilitate human relationships and connection through that technology. People find it really difficult to form repeat behaviors of accessing an app if it's just the relationship with the app itself. I believe the way forward is there is an element, there is a role for technology and digital to play, but it shouldn't be about the individual's relationship with the technology. It's about relationships with other peers through that technology where they support each other. Because when it comes to creating behaviors, when there's social connections that almost guilt people into having to be there, that's why exercise groups are so effective. You're not doing it for yourself, you're doing it because you don't want other people to realize you're not there. That's the motivator. Those are the level of intrinsic motivation factors we need to tap into if we're going to get individuals to self-lead in their own rehab. So we need to find the tools, the options and the systems to make that a reality. Thanks very much for that, Ben. Um, do we have do we have anybody else with us? I think we're having a few technical hitches. We were expecting John to be with us and he was here. I saw him fleetingly um, and we were expecting Will. Um, Graham Wilkes here, and again, he was here, but meeting uh, but me on and off. So I think what we'll do, um, because obviously they're having a few technical issues, is we'll start, uh, just Sarah, Ben and myself, we'll start having a little bit of dialogue about some of the things that we've raised between us. Um, Sarah, Ben, are you happy with that? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy. <laughs> Absolutely. So... I mean, I'll start with you, Ben. Um, I was really interested about you saying about reducing this friction um, to try and make, you know, and using IT, you know, IT methods to introduce rehabilitation. So what are, in terms of exercise rehabilitation, what are the best ways, do you think, about helping make this happen, helping make you know, reduce the friction? Is it because is there a particular platform we should all be using which is easier than others or, or not? I think one is initially it's a mindset shift from from patients, individuals, because a lot of emphasis is put on the NHS. And I think non-NHS to do with rehab or self or management is is therefore seen as suspicious. So actually, it's legitimizing options that can be found outside of, of traditional healthcare systems. The moment we can do that and mean that there are options incredibly locally, um, there are options in the home as well as going to outpatients, primary care. It needs to be everything. Um, but it's optionality. Uh, the moment people can access a solution that's either in the local leisure centre or to go and see a GP, it doesn't matter. It's having the optionality having it nearby. Um, that could be as simple as having better online resources, but the solutions are not just all digital because actually people really want that face-to-face human connection. People are willing to go and have digital um, digital solutions, um, but there has to be an element behind it where there are other people involved and it's not just you and an app or you and a screen. So mm-hmm. reducing friction is just increasing the speed of access and having greater optionality. Mm. And and Sarah, Sarah, what about what about your thoughts around that? And do the CSP have a stance around? I might be asking something that you two haven't talked about, but uh, do the CSP have a particular stance around the use of AI? Do you know? So, I mean, I think. Can you hear me, firstly? Yeah. Okay. Good. So, I think the first thing is if we look at it all in the in the main in terms of remote digital data tech there's there's actually quite a lot of components there so ai is not just about user interface but it's actually about clinicians and all that they gather in the background and are able to actually 
help patients who may, some of whom may be completely digitally um, non-active. Um, but rem but the how we use that that tech also is part of the evidence that we're we're collecting at the moment because obviously remote has in stealth gone forward um, by necessity in this in this latest period of time, and even some of the initial um, evidence that that people are are collecting that researchers are collecting is showing certain things that won't surprise us. So particular health pop populations will respond and welcome it and, and have really great outcomes and it will actually enhance their, their life because they can do um, sessions remote or they can, uh, they can do exercise remote, they can uh, interact with their clinicians remotely. And for other populations, for example, even in the early, the, the early gathering, we see um, dementia patients, I was talking about this earlier, um, very poor, very poor results in terms of not having that face-to-face. -face. So it isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all, um, but I think tech offers a lot of opportunities, and we're certainly working with partners, partners like Sport England, to, to, try, and, uh, to try and exploit that where it can be more successful. Oh, many thanks for that, Sarah. So I'm very pleased to see that we have now John and Graham with us and somewhat relieved. Welcome, <laughs> John and Graham. Hello, everyone. So, uh, <laughs> so we'll go to John first. John, is that all right? Maybe we'll go to Graham next then. So um, I think, John, you're frozen, slightly frozen. Yeah, we'll definitely go to Graham next then. So, Graham, I'd like to introduce you. Um, you're a Chief Medical Officer at Connect Health. You're a GP by background. Um, and uh, after 35 years of working in the NHS, you definitely understand the nuts and bolts of, of uh, how it's, well, certainly how it's meant to work. So over to you, Graham, please. Can I just check you can hear me? Yep. Excellent. Thank you. And apologies for late arrival. I, I think I might have appeared earlier and then disappeared. Um, but, uh, yes. Um, right. So, so yes, thank you very much for this opportunity to, to, to talk about re rehabilitation. Yeah. So, so my background was, was as a GP and for the past 23 years, I've worked in MSK um, and, and also alongside that uh, being exposed to the provider commissioner aspect of, of healthcare. Um, certainly as a GP, I was on the commissioning side and now working for Connect Health, um, I'm on the provider side of musculoskeletal care. Um, and, and I developed during my career, if you like, from, from a GP who uh, knew very little about MSK and certainly knew very little about rehabilitation. I think I could probably just about spell it, and, and, and that was about it. Um, and, and certainly, I was thinking earlier on, my recollection of rehabilitation, and this might be way beyond people because of age, was that film Reach for the Sky when Douglas Bader um, got onto his artificial legs uh, post-war. Um, and that, to me, was my mental image of rehabilitation. Um, I think what, what I've come to recognize over the 23 years that I've been in MSK and, and allied to being a GP, and then a transition through to a consultant in sports and exercise medicine, is that clearly um, 
rehabilitation has is just not well represented on a on a political uh, or senior healthcare management level and, and by senior healthcare management level i'm talking around you know um nhs england um uh, public health england etc cetera, etc cetera. um and and as a result of that the emphasis in the msk pathway has ultimately very much been uh, directed towards interventional and that you know that's that's largely the realm of doctors and uh, and I'm a doctor and and so is John who who's going to speak after me um and we're, we're both at the faculty of sports and exercise medicine um so yeah f funds um have been directed towards interventional treatment as as indeed has education um towards the public so the public know all about injections uh, and and operations and and they don't really understand rehabilitation so so quite a major part for me of of, of rehabilitation so what i should state is in in my 23 years i've certainly gone from somebody who didn't really recognize rehabilitation what it was and the value to, to, to fully understanding it. Uh, I also work in elite sport um, and, and have worked with uh, elite athletes for many years. So I, I understand the potential and I understand the value of therapists uh, of all varieties um, and the multidisciplinary nature of rehabilitation that is required. So, um, so in terms of the funding and politics of this, which is my first point, and then I'll go on to my second point, I think I think we need um, as as professional groups to get together those who who recognise the value of rehabilitation. We need to work together, and we we need to to seek the funding, the representation, uh, and we need to get in and educate both the public and, and primary care. Um, I came from being a GP where I knew nothing. Uh, I believe. It's probably a little bit better than it was when I trained, but not a lot in terms of recognition of, of what therapists do, what the potential is, and um, why we should be moving away from interventional expensive treatment with, with a lot of risks. Um, so I think, I think we've got to get together uh, as, as professional groups and campaign uh, and educate. And my second point, uh, which would be slightly briefer, is that I think for those who are involved in rehabilitation, I think there's two points that I would make. First of all, we've, we've got to get away from the medical model of rehabilitation um, and, and that it's all about doing exercises because the psychosocial input to people's presentations is incredibly important and I would argue as more important than the physical manifestations. So it's all well and good and uh, when I did my training uh, in musculoskeletal I, I learned to to take a good history and, and do a good examination and, and come to a diagnosis but if you don't have that psychosocial um, those skills and competencies to, to see what the person that's sat in front of you then your rehabilitation will fail and I, th I, I still think that we are wanting in terms of that, um, the, the biopsychosocial approach. We all say we do it, but do we actually do it? And then this comes to the crux of it. The only way that we're going to get the funding and the um, increase in uptake of rehabilitation is if we can actually demonstrate the value of that. Uh, and it's all right quoting papers from research trials here, here there and everywhere if we're not actually producing our own data and, and showing that we're, we're being effective, then the decision makers will not listen to us 
and you know if if we can have as loud a voice as we want but unless you're actually showing the value uh, for what we do then then we'll not get anywhere and of course we all know i know you know the values there absolutely i have absolutely no doubt about that but i think we are still um deficient in demonstrating that value so i'll leave it there we need funding we need to educate public primary care and we need to be demonstrating value in what we're doing oh that's great thank you many thanks uh graham so finally moving to john um now john was there john can you hear me I can hear you, yeah. So can everyone else hear John? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I might <coughs> because uh, I've got a problem with the internet. But, yeah. Not, not to worry. We can hear you. That's the main thing. So, John, I'm just going to okay. introduce you. Um, so, John is uh, my esteemed colleague, and he's a consultant in rheumatology and rehabilitation. He's also director of Pure Sports Medicine. Um in the past, he's been director for the Defence Rehabilitation and it's also been the National Clinical Director of Rehabilitation for NHS England. Um, so he obviously has a huge amount of experience around policy and strategy uh, for musculoskeletal health. So, John, thank you for being with us. I'm sorry about the technical issues you've been experiencing, but over to you. No, thank you. Uh, well, I hope you can hear me. Uh, if you can't, I... Not sure how I'm going to find out, but anyway, um, what I would like to say is that I, I over the, the years I've been involved in rehabilitation, I've, I've attended many meetings like this and and um, discussed rehabilitation in many fora like this. Inevitably, what you find is is a group of people like yourselves who are absolutely passionate about what you do for. Um, the patients that you see in front of you and inevitably everybody produces their own uh, way of improving their, uh, their particular service and the outcomes to the patients um, and improves access and improves the quality of the outcomes and that's excellent. The problem is there's just not enough of you, there's just not enough of the rehabilitation services that we need and this is about, as Graham um, referred to, it's about prioritising it within the health services. Uh, and I don't think it is prioritised. Um, I worked for NHS England as a national clinical director effectively for two and a half years before the programme was stopped. And the programme was stopped with money. Um, having said that, they, the NHS England practically invested no money in the, in the programme at that stage. But nevertheless... It, it was not considered an a useful use of resources at that stage. So from my point of view, we can talk about best practice, we can talk about clinical delivery, but actually what we need is rehabilitation and we need more of it. Uh, and in order to do that, it isn't good enough now to say what's good for the patient because um, nobody's interested outside these fora. Um, the people own the money and the people who allocate the resources do not understand what rehabilitation is. They do not understand what the uh, potential outcomes of this of rehabilitation are. And they don't understand the economic benefit of rehabilitation. And my art, I might have lost it. My Sorry, argument, all right. My argument would be that the way to get the resources into rehabilitation 
is to win the economic argument um, and to demonstrate that rehabilitation has an economic benefit to society as a whole and that there is a positive return on investment. Now, this isn't what we as clinicians are normally involved in. It's not what we're normally bothered about. Um, but I think it is fundamental uh, to actually making rehabilitation effective in this country. And this isn't just musculoskeletal rehabilitation. I think it's all forms of rehabilitation, complex neurological rehabilitation, degenerative disease, heart, heart disease. Understanding that rehabilitation is a component part of every medical and therapeutic intervention and understanding that everybody should have a rehabilitation plan. And at the moment, we don't do that. It is a complete, completely um, alien concept to the most of the medical profession uh, as to what rehabilitation has to do with them. And I think there are many obstacles to this. And I would say that one of the big obstacles is understanding what rehabilitation is. Um, that it is part of a very big care pathway, or should be. People don't understand what the breadth of it is, and most importantly, they don't understand what the effects of it is. And those of us who have been in rehabilitation for many years and can see people's lives transformed by simple interventions find that very frustrating. The other bit is, the other obstacle I would say is funding. There isn't enough funding by any stretch of the imagination. We're quite happy to spend up to £300,000 on one treatment for hepatitis C, but we would never even consider adding £300,000 to a community rehabilitation service uh, to benefit many more patients. And finally, I would say that the, the, the biggest obstacle at the moment is the commissioning structure within the NHS for rehabilitation of any form, which uh, involves a split between specialists and um, community care, who funds it, why it's funded, uh, and where it's funded. And in particular, a patient can pass down the so-called um, pathway of rehabilitation and be funded, in theory, by three or sometimes four commissioners in one uh, care episode. Now, that cannot be effective or efficient. Uh, <clears throat> and I think, frankly, unless we address these fundamentals, um, we can talk all we want about how we improve our rehabilitation services. Uh, overall, the general population will get none. So, so that's that's the the gist of my my concerns. So many thanks for that, uh, John. That's that's really good. I think maybe we'll start off by discussing um, across all of us now. So if we can all have our mics switched on um, for this next part. Um, and we can discuss about these obstacles that we have with talk about funding of musculoskeletal services um, and what what utopia might look like and how we plan to get there. Um, because I suppose we need to think about the existing funding. OK, we talk. John alluded to we haven't got enough funding full stop, but with the funding that we do have available, uh, are we accessing it as well as we should be? Um, so should we try and optimise the existing uh, funding streams first? And if so, how do we how do we do that? And then we'll move on to what new funding avenues we could consider. So um, I don't know whether John or Graham want to respond to that first. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm happy to kick off. Um, yeah, I think 
I think there's always a lot of discussion in healthcare about the health service needs a lot more funding, and, and it undoubtedly does. Um, but I think the pathway that we work in musculoskeletal it, it is one of the prime examples where the, the, the funding could be used a lot better. And I think I think I'm sure everyone on this call today would would understand that because it's fundamentally what we're talking about. Um, I think I, I think we can almost take it as 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 accepted that, that there's plenty of evidence out there now. Um, and growing evidence that that rehabilitation provides much better value for money um, than some of the surgical procedures. And, you know, we think about the research that's come out recently around subacromial decompression surgery as one example, but a big example of, of, of the huge sums of money that are, are spent on that surgical procedure. And, and, and the recent trials from Oxford and Finland have, have shown that, that it is um, a, a placebo. And many people have argued a gateway into proper rehabilitation post-surgery. Um, I, th I think to, to get the money, you have to you have to work out where the money actually exists, where it sits within health um, service within the NHS, um, and, and the two places where it sits are, are with with providers who who are either hospitals, um, secondary care, or or community providers, um, or the other source of funding is clearly primary care, and we know that. Um, PCNs, um, primary care networks, are a new thing uh, where, where funding's going to. Uh, and, and of course, the, the probably the only musculoskeletal uh, piece of the long-term plan of significance was first contact practitioners um, in, in primary care. So I think so, so the, the money at the moment is, is going to come from either secondary care or, or, or from PCNs, essentially. So that, that, that's where you have to look to to, to make those um, arguments, make the case for, for value for money. Uh, and, and I think if you look at secondary care, traditionally, we all know that, that there was perverse incentives um, for expensive operations. And, and they've largely gone now because most hospitals have gone from payment by um, what you do to to block contracts. Um, so, so the so the musculoskeletal pathway through hospital now is finite and has to be well controlled. So, in terms of you know the key person at a hospital is the chief finance officer because he has to make the, the books balance and he's going to listen to arguments around value for money. Um, the piling orthopedic surgery through the doors is no longer going to generate the incomes because there's a fixed amount of money. So that, 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 that's a real key place to get to is senior level of, of hospitals. And then in terms of primary care, the PCNs, who knows where that's going to go to? Um, it may succeed, it may not. We, we know we're dealing with primary care, I've already said that, that doesn't understand rehabilitation. But I think FCP is, is a great opportunity to get in and, and provide that education uh, within and, and the skills in, in, um, in primary care and control the pathway. Um, and, and, and then you have, you have to then move that money uh, into rehabilitation. And, and the long-term plan talks about moving care into the community, 30% less outpatient appointments. So, so, so there are some building blocks there, but, but my, my suggestion, something that, that, that I've learned, um, particularly working at Connect Health, where we, we, we've had a real challenge to, to, to get in and provide good rehab services, you, you have to get 
to the people with the money and demonstrate value. Sarah, so what, what are um, your thoughts about money? I know that you're, you're quite keen on, on data and evidencing funding through evidencing how we can prove the rehabilitation value through data. So maybe you can weave that into the conversation. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly no doubt that, um, you know, you get the data, the, the money, you can track the money. Um, and they are, as I said, inextricably, uh, inextricably linked. There is no endless amount of money. Everybody is sensible enough here to, to, to know that. And, and, uh, Graham spoke about the, the, the parts of the system in terms of once it, once you get to sort of local and, and regional disbursement. But, but really right now, actually there is money. Um, we know of the 4.5 billion, that 2.7 billion is, is, is marketed for community care, but it has to get there. Um, we know there's more money because of COVID. We know that there's still a big struggle around uh, integration and that if there aren't solutions in social care, they're going to have hefty costs. Um, we know principally, though, that in acute, data is collected. Acute rehab data is collected. There are national data sets. So that has to follow. If that followed the patient as opposed to followed the, you know, every structure followed its own way, then actually we, we would have that data. So we need to, we need to identify that because the, the biggest problem, and, and this is why the campaign exists, and there is, there is 30 and growing. Um, and I welcome people that haven't um, expressed an interest or talked talked to the alliance yet to please do because it, it is the show in town and it is it is the show at at the table right now. But well, okay then, let's move sorry on. Sorry about that. <laughs> what Sarah thoughts about her technology? Um, and Ben, do you have any thoughts about um, financing? I mean, because you're coming in with more of a a digital solution, which surely should therefore be a pretty cost effective way of rehabilitating the masses uh, yeah I, I think we do we, we definitely track we, we collect a lot of data the great thing about what we do is that in order for people to engage in our services uh, whether it's at home or in local swimming pools is that they have to give us more information about how they're progressing how they're doing so we can track um, their outcomes um, what we do is we uh, we ask individuals to self-fund um, when people go to the local pool, they pay the same amount as the price of a swim to engage. But we get um, incredibly high attendance rates. And arguably, uh, is there a funding pot out there so people shouldn't have to pay? I don't know, because actually there is an element that if people pay for it, there's, a, there's partly uh, it can increase motivation. But also the NHS should be able to provide things that uh, health service that's free at the point of access. And we're delivering a health service that's benefiting the wider health system. Um, so it's been, it's been an ongoing conversation with with the organisations we work with to deliver good boost and the people who attend us as well. Um, but ultimately, the reason why people are willing to part of their cash is because we offer a rehabilitation option that people value and that people feel they get benefit from, that they want to do. Um, and I think evidence is, is really important, but also is that we need to make sure we support things that are evidence-based, but also we need to be much better at supporting people to participate in things that will benefit them that they want to do that, ha that has low risk. And sometimes that evidence may not come for years yet. And there's a difference between the short 
long-term emotional benefit that people feel through being more active, having more independence, um, feeling they have more control in, the, in their life versus actually avoiding the hip, hip and knee arthroplasty, which is five years away, which is really difficult to track because it's so longitudinal. So that is, this is the gray area we, we, we operate within is that evidence is important, but actually the evidence is that the outcomes are important to patients isn't always aligned to a standard metric or measure. Yeah, okay. That's I think moving, sticking with the theme of um, Ben, of you coming through with the um, technology. Um, I mean, have you got anything to learn from other countries which are perhaps ahead of the game with us with um, telehealth or um, digital health? So I'm thinking of places like Scandinavia, Canada. Um, have, how much of, of what they're doing out there that they've been doing for far longer than we have? Um, is transferable and how many lessons can we learn from from what uh, they're doing we, we, we can we can learn a huge amount from kind of what other countries like Scandinavia are doing um but what what technology offers us is that is the true democratization of healthcare the idea that you don't need to go and see a healthcare professional to gain access to the support you want healthcare professionals physios consultants become bottlenecks to gaining access to support and recovery because if from a patient's point of view the only way i can get better is to see the next gp to see the next outpatient appointment to go and see the next consultant their ability to recover is dependent on that person not themselves so i think where technology can offer a huge amount is the democratization of that and that may be faster access so people can realize that they're given um, really good advice from a physio or a GP sooner so they can then self-manage and self-lead. But I think that's what the benefit technology can offer us is the democratisation of, of, of access to, to good, good information, ideally evidence-based guidance and support, so people can even be fast-tracked into more outpatient solutions earlier to, to reduce, to, to avoid things worsening, to avoid deconditioning. Um, that's where technology can really provide a great solution and support for what we do. Mm. So just sticking with that, just for one more one more question, I suppose, for myself, is that um, from doing a PPIE exercise recently with um, with patients, there's been there was quite a positive uptake on people on patients wanting to to go with the digital solutions and people are finding it, you know, very, very useful for them. It fits in. They haven't got car parking issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, some of the therapists, however, are finding it um, less appealing. Um, they might have even been quite excited about it, at the prospect, but now they're saying, uh, well, now we feel like we're sitting in call centres and this is not why I retain, trained to be a physio, osteopath, chiropractor, whoever. So how can we, if this is going to take, it won't take over all our work, digital health won't take over all our work, but if it takes over a significant portion or it's part of a significant portion of musculoskeletal rehabilitation, um, how can we improve the the experience for the for the professionals who are who are delivering it? Should this be a training? Should be more training for them? Um, what what are your thoughts on that? Probably probably to Sarah for this one initially, if that's all right, Sarah, and then to Ben. Sure. I'm not, I, it'll be somewhat limited because probably of everyone, I'm not walking in the shoes of a clinician. Um, but I guess like any. Yeah, but I guess like anything, what I would say is we wouldn't step out into any of this without the insight. So I think that's that's, you know, that's what 
what's being gathered right now because of the acceleration. Um, and if there are blockages within the profession, and there are other things too that are, that are an issue because there are, I imagine, clinicians who don't want to go face-to-face because of the fear around um, c- contracting COVID. Um, and there were issues very early on around PPE, and we were very active at, this, at, the, uh, at the CSP to campaign and, uh, alongside of... Um, of other colleagues and in, in other professional bodies, so there, there are, there are, there are issues, challenges, but opportunities everywhere. So I would say we got to understand what those are. Um, are those about individuals and mindsets? Um, are those about because of how people perceived how they want to help, or fears of technology, um, or is it really about this is what the this population of people who need healthcare would really benefit from or open to? Um, and so how do we, like with anything else, respond to what's going to have an impact on, on patients? And what about, can you hear me? What about um, Ben? Your thoughts? So, so I, th- I think, yeah, training would be great. Training to support how to better have cons- consultation and communication with patients digitally. But I think feedback would, great, better feedback loops. And what I mean by that is so that, Patients can provide feedback, not just during the session, but longer term as well. And whether that system is as simple as receiving a text, just like when you when you call your Vodafone or your, whoever your provider is, customer support, you'll get follow-up text a day later, a few days later. To have somewhere feedback loop that actually that was beneficial, and maybe a month later, a month later that actually, yes, the guidance or advice or solution you gave to me has made an imp- improvement. I think that having that feedback loop from a clinician's point of view and knowing that actually what you're doing is making is having an impact and actually being beneficial would make that interaction better. And that's not just for telehealth and remote health. I think actually even face-to-face consultations, that'd be better. At the same time, yeah. do you want to bombard every single patient with a text every seven days to ask them how they're doing because not everyone's going to respond. But I think having some sort of feedback loop and some way of understanding what healthcare advice you're providing and, and the solutions you're offering and what that does to individuals would be really beneficial. Mm. And Graham, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, you know, as an overall theme, what I would say, if, if, if anyone out there thinks we're going to be going back to a model of um, patients referred to to see you self refers or referred by the GP, that the, the door opens and and you're going to sit and take a twenty minute subjective uh, and then get them on the couch and examine them and then sit them down and and, and go through the options etc. Uh, send them away and see them a few weeks later for a follow up. Th- th- those days are going to disappear um, and I think everyone's got to reset. That, that their expectations of, of of how we practice so picking up on on, on ben's point you know I, I think artificial intelligence uh computers we we, we use one called physio now uh, that we introduced uh, a few months ago it's got 95 percent patient satisfaction and it, it, it's a it's a triage tool um it gets patients to the right person first time uh, and, and I think as the technology improves um, and with the feedback loops into AI, it'll get better and better. And I think what, what we have to expect is that patients walking through the door in the future to see us face to face will have already been sorted so that you're the right person to see them. And the reason you're the right person is because your data shows. And I, I've used this example recently. 
if you if if you've got a patient with shoulder pain and 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 we can all come up with subacromial pain and all the de debate about what the diagnosis is but essentially if 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 you're a practitioner whatever your professional background who who has excellent results for you know a single parent uh, who's got depression um who's got a sore shoulder and is overweight um and and you've shown that you can work with those people and 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 rehabilitate them um successfully then that that's the computer will send them to you and i guess in respect of that i think where humans won't be discarded is is that is the psychosocial skills because ultimately whilst i'm sure computers will, will start to develop that and and there's talk about recognizing visual clues by you know by computers etc uh, which is a bit scary but 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 ultimately i think i think we as human beings um are, are empathetic people um and and c can relate to to the human beings so i think I think the technology will will sort the patients out, and then I think it'll it'll distribute to, to to people with the appropriate skills. And therefore, you know, if if you're an injecting person that likes to inject a shoulder, then it may be that 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 your um, your supply will dry up because the computer might stop sending people to you because long term outcomes aren't on good. Um, so you'll sit waiting for a knock on the door. I think if you I think by the, the psychosocial is absolutely vital, um, and and I, and I would encourage people in terms of rehabilitation to really think about how well prepared they are to really learn about the person in front of them, and that's what a computer will really struggle to do, um, and, and, and planning their rehab and and working with them um, will be absolutely key in the future. So yes, technology, probably more at the front end, um, getting the right person walking through the door, then utilizing your your skills to, to, to improve people's uh, health and well-being. If I can pick up on that one, I think you're right. that's a really good point. Greg. And what I loved most was that you said it wasn't the, the diagnosis or condition or even the joint that was one of the factor. It was the fact that it was a single mom overweight and depression. And it that would the MSK needs to focus on treating the individual, the human element. And if there's someone who has those softer skills that they're often seen of about the communication, interaction, the biopsychosocial model, to be able to, ha to have a way to stratify and phenotype those patients based on the initial presentation, um, yeah, that is revolutionary in the way in the way you're approaching it. Yeah, and I, I just say, I mean, it's funny because I've, I've, I've fallen into this in a way. I, I, I was never one of the brightest academic people all, all through my training, et cetera, but I, I sort of plugged away. And I think I've been quite lucky because I did 13 years as a GP and you get 10 minutes with somebody to 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 work them out and, and, and decide what you're going to do. And certainly as I transferred into MSK, which was a new area for me, and, and clearly the challenge for me was the, 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 the medical aspect um, of it. Uh, what, what it's enabled me to do is, which hopefully is where I'm successful, is when someone comes through the door within about two, three minutes, I think we all can do this, but sometimes mm -hmm. we're scared scared to approach it. I sort of think, right, I, I, I'm not going to talk about your, your shoulder pain. You, you, you've clearly got issues that, that we need to delve into. And I think the system doesn't allow us to do that, and, and we're scared to do it. I, th I think people, we've all got the skills. Everyone out there has got those skills. Um, we've got to allow the system to, to, to give us the time. And, I, you know, I'll just use this as an example because it's, it's close. Um, 
we, we have a service in Southwest Essex, which is next door to Mid-Essex. There may be people from Mid-Essex. And you'll recall that a number of years ago, the commissioner went to public consultation um, with three options to run the normal physio service um, to, to, to decommission it and have no community physio or have a single appointment assessment. Uh, and there was an outcry and the CSP quite rightly were involved and, and they, they eventually went to a single appointment. And, and, and I've sort of been meeting up with, um, with, with the providers and the commissioners in Essex. They have a single appointment, but they're not allowed even a follow-up as their community physiotherapy service. You know, what, 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 what is that about? It's just completely in, in, in an extreme in the wrong direction. We, we need that funding to go into that interaction. And, and we, we need to have six, ten appointments if need be, um, obviously, as long as we're getting the value out of that. Mm. And I think as well, it's, it's interesting how we, it's a perceived way of being um, involved in it, or how we've been trained to, to do a, an assessment. So uh, an example of just a me another member of staff um, from a different department walked in to my office the other day and just sort of said, oh, I've got a problem in my shoulder, Emma. Uh, any chance you can have a quick look at it? And I said, well, I haven't really got time now, um, but book in and we'll we'll get you sorted out. Um, but I said, but, but then you go, but, but what is it? You know, and she was like, oh, it's just here. And it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. so it sounds like subacranial pain syndrome to me. So probably what you could do is try. Da, 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 da. And um, I said, but we'll, we'll assess it properly next time. But just in that three, four minutes, obviously, she came in about a week later because actually it's not feeling too bad. We assessed it 40 minutes later, came to the same conclusions. So is it that we need to move away from a very structured, a very um, a very tightly structured way of assessing to more of a malleable, you know, minimal, and then and then expand the assessment if things aren't going on. I think if people are frightened about medical legal and missing things, but um, I don't know whether the rest of the panel have any thoughts around that. I have a thought that might tie into that. Um, and that's just, okay. um, actually, Essex was pre-me, um, not that I am at all um, the centre of this, but um, uh, it's got to be probably five years ago because I've been in the CSP for four. It must have happened just before because there were certain things kicking around. And I think, first of all, we need to be careful that we don't um, apply solutions forevermore that may have worked at one time. Let's be careful that we will always stand up if there are going to be um, cuts that are about simply savings and not about transformation. But in terms of the alliance, there is no way that we are saying, let's just do more of the same. We are saying, let's, let's reimagine. So let's take what's excellent and let's do more of that, but let's get it consistent. So let's not, let's not leave it to what's essentially right now a postcode lottery with really poor odds um, once you're in the community. And, and COVID reflects that too. Um, I think there's a point that probably wasn't picked up that just yet and, 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 and probably would have got there. But um, I, I feel that the, from, the, from, the, from the years of kind of sitting behind the mirror and the, in the focus groups, from the, from the reading clinicians, evidence from hearing people's stories, that people do want to do more for themselves. Um, but we have a role in the collective we when I think about the alliance. That's multiple uh, professions and multiple conditions um, to, to help people to recover. And I use the word recover because that's a big learning from COVID. Um, 
we have a role in preventing people from becoming more disabled or disabled unnecessarily. That's really costly. But health inequalities specifically, and this is not two words that people like to put together before COVID, they are very, very out. And they are, they are at the center of these issues. And they are at the center of the problems that we are trying to resolve actively, rapidly, um, and together uh, around rehabilitation. And they will be and continue to be at the center of integration. So to, to Graham's point, personalization, absolutely. Um, and to your point, Emma, in a sense that you have to have a personalized approach to how you do assessment, but how we capture it um, and, and the, the, the taking some of the variation and also the unnecessary stuff out of what we capture to make sure that commissioners and planners have what they need is key to addressing those, those health inequalities. So who do you think is the best personal people or professionals to, to deliver the future of um, musculoskeletal rehabilitation? Is it physios? osteopaths, chiropractors, sports therapists, etc. Or is it, is it not about the profession, it's about the person. If the person's able to do the job, then the person's right for the job. Um, have the panel got any thoughts about that? Yeah, if I can pick that up. I mean, okay. No. Um, yeah, I, I think as Sarah was suggesting, it's the person with the appropriate skills. It doesn't matter what your title is. I think what what i would what, what i would observe and i'm going to be absolutely honest here so so i i'm a doctor um i i think i became um the the, the physiotherapist's uh, champion uh, a number of years ago uh, i've spent time with the csp karen middleton uh, and various other people at the csp um and and i i've got you know, I think physiotherapy is something uh, physiotherapists I've, I've worked with for, for a number of years and respect their their, their skills. I think I think the profession has to be really careful not not to um, push itself in certain directions, which 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 I think it has done um, and, and need, needs to tr try and think about some of the things we're talking about and what what are the skills that are needed. Example. Um, when I when I first come in, so this physiotherapists were clamoring to become injectors um, and to, um, you know, ultrasound guided injections. Uh, they've started to be talking about doing minor surgery, uh, et cetera, et cetera, which is all well and good for an individual. Um, but but the, the, there was this sort of progression uh, up to more interventional treatment. Uh, we know a lot of the FCP studies of, 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 you know, it's the only bad thing in my uh, eyes about FCP is they've increased the in, in injection rate. So what's that about? Um, so I think I think physiotherapists have got to think about some of the issues we've been talking about and, and think about where you can position yourself. Um, so I think physiotherapy are, are highly skilled diagnosticians. Um, I think, as I said, need need to develop psychosocial skills. Um, and and I think FCP is a real um, um, fertile ground for physiotherapists who are ambitious clinically. Um, I, I think I think that is absolutely the place to go. In terms of nuts and bolts of rehab, though, are physiotherapists the best people to do that? You know, we've we've got we've got sports therapists, um, 
etc etc we've we've got gym instructors and it you know in our pathway at, at connect health we downgrade people from physiotherapists into gyms paid for uh, by nhs money as part of our contract and, and they work with with personal trainers in in gyms which works really well so I, I think we've got to get away from this is all about SEM doctors, this is all about physios, this is all about sports therapists or whatever. We've, it's got to be the best people with the skills. And crucially for value for money, you need to have a look at your salary because as your salary comes up, goes up, your value goes down for the system. That's a reality. Um, I mean, I, I would say that very clearly that there is, um, there is enough work for everyone. And that's because there's enough need. Um, I think that the pathway is long and varied. I think at the beginning of it, you need the people that have the right skills to make assessments. You need the right people where you're discharging. You have a lot of people in between, depending on the personalization of the plans put in place and all other manner of things. I think on the ground, you're looking at a multidisciplinary team. That's how people work together anyway. Um, and I think that, you know, the workforce, and when I say everyone, I mean, the workforce is, is physio, it's unregistered workforce, so that's support workers, it's exercise and, and sports professionals, it's the role of the voluntary sector. And, and that, that is, um, I mean, I, I believe you when you quote things, Graham, obviously, you know, I think obviously things are, are modernizing and evolving all the time, because this isn't language that I recognize. Um, so, so, Rehab, just as with FCP, and that was that was a concerted campaign to make a seismic shift in the profession, probably the biggest one, arguably, since the 1970s, or maybe since, you know, carrying on since the 1970s, but it took a while to take hold. Community rehab is certainly on that road. Um, but you, you know, you're not you're not going to draw from me certainly an objection to the fact that we need a creative and imaginative um, approach to using lots of people, but we need to listen to patients too, because if we look at the insight, we, we did a presentation on the Sport England funded insight, which looks at the differences between how clinicians approach things and how patients approach things. And, you know, clinicians will talk about the long-term health benefits. Patients are definitely in the soft emotional space of this makes me feel better. I feel like I look better. Um, I feel like I can just do this one thing that I really enjoy, whether it's lifting my child or feeling, you know, up for it enough to actually go and uh, meet somebody in the park. So uh, we can't lose sight of that. Okay. So um, I think what we need to do now is go to some questions. Um, we have got some questions. I think there's been a few technical issues, but we have got some questions um, that I can pick up uh, coming through. Um, WhatsApp on my phone from various people and I can uh, pick up some that we are posting uh, through Flick um, and so I think we will start to address those if that's all right with the panel. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to start with uh, what we've got here. Um, ben, uh, I think you were saying can we touch on um, peer and patient-led solutions for rehab? So if you want to start with that. Yeah, I, I, no matter who, no matter who the profession is, no matter what the MDT team, uh, team is, it's it, it comes down to the same adage of if you teach a person to fish, they'll eat. Uh, so if you give a person to fish, they'll eat for a day. If you teach a person to fish, they'll eat every day. Um, the realities of rehab is it's just there's more than one touch point, and those touch points are often how patients self manage. Um, the challenge we have is that 
the motivation isn't there because often the, the hard work for rehab pays off far in the future. At least we tell people they do. Um, laziness, laziness pays off right now. Hard work pays off 20 years away. That heart attack you're going to avoid is 20 years away. That hip replacement you're going to avoid with the false fraction 20 years away. Um, we're really bad at future foreca- forecasting. And so we need to make sure there are things that motivate people to do it now. And that can't be a physio or a doctor reminding people every single day because there aren't enough of them. Um, so it's how do we support people to be better at supporting others, communities better at supporting others. Um, and we know some of the key barriers. We know that individuals want to volunteer their time um, and that there are many people who would happily give half an hour, an hour a month, particularly they live with the condition. They have that patient lived experience. The problem is there are two major barriers to peers getting involved, um, to true peer support. And that one is the fear of litigation. And so people are worried they're going to get the wrong advice, they get the wrong direction, and it's going to come back to haunt them. Two is that there's a lot of faff that can be involved in being a volunteer or peer leader. You've got to book the community hall. You've got to advertise and promote it. You've got to take the money and subs for the coffee and tea. I think if we can find ways to clear through those barriers, then it means that there are more opportunities for people to support others um, in a way that's actually tangible and meaningful. Um, Sending people off with a a PDF toolkit on how to manage pain is a a step forward, but actually beyond having a glance and look at it, you're not really going to do it. Um, If we look at other examples of where working with others and peers, it becomes more effective. So things like fundraising. Cancer Research UK um, said last year that if you do it with someone else, you do it in a team, each person will raise 100% more funding than they would have individually. So it's how do we connect people with other people so they do it together, which means that actually there's that motivation there. Because the same with anything, if you've got someone you're doing it with, you're more likely to do it day in, day out. So I think it's, it's making sure we have the right health professionals, the right professionals, the right systems, the right MDTs, but is also making sure that we really find ways to create, to, yeah, to give the power to patients so they can do stuff to better um, and not be reliant on health services and not, and not see that as the only way they can recover. Graham, were you wanting to also touch on something about professional groups and MTD working or do you feel that's already been covered from what you were yeah, saying earlier? Yeah, I, I covered that when you were offline. Yeah, I can hear you, yeah. Fantastic. Um, I'm just looking at some of the other questions that we've got here. Um, can I can I just make a point, please? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not sure exactly how oh, I'll oh, be with brilliant. you. <clears throat> um, there's a couple of points. I'm sorry, I keep dipping in and dipping out. But um, um, Graham made an ish point about a, a commissioning decision around um whether or not we should offer one assessment for a physiotherapy appointment or no treatment at all now the one thing i would say is would we understand that dialogue if it was about endoscopy you can have one endoscopy in 10 years for example but that's your lot or would we understand that dialogue if it was about surgery or any other intervention in the medical framework i would suggest no there might be an uproar but it's a quiet uproar i never heard anything in the national press about this for example so what is it about musculoskeletal rehabilitation which is absolutely disposable that you that the nhs is quite content to decommission it um 
or indeed any other form of rehabilitation, um, why we why can we have conversations about just trying to get a little bit more when actually we know that musculoskeletal conditions are at the moment the single biggest factor working days lost in the country why is that not important and and it ties in a little bit with the data thing yes there is data there's plenty of data out there i can assure you at nhs england they're not looking at it because the only data they will look at is the data that they collate through ccg commissioning um, or through area team um, capture now if you look at ccg uh, data set there's something I, I forget the AX figures, but I, I did look at it recently. There's something like 150 CCG data sets collected across the NHS, of which something like 14 have a musculoskeletal bent. And most of those are about surgical outputs. I think there's one about outcome following hip fracture. So as far as, as MSK rehabilitation concern is concerned, the NHS has no data. And a senior member of the NHS said to me, I don't know what you are worried about, John. There's no evidence that there's no rehabilitation going on. And, and he's absolutely right. There is no evidence there's no rehabilitation going on because there's no measure of it which gets to anybody that's interested. And, and we can collect, collect our data locally, but if unless it's collected nationally, it's not a problem. And that's how it's seen. Now, waiting lists for A and E are a problem because we have the data and it's published into, uh, nationally and it's on the news, and therefore you will get resources in, in A and E. <laughs> surgery is going to be a big issue. We're going to go into long waiting times now. It, something will be done about it. MSK rehabilitation back pain. Who, who knows? Nobody knows that anything's happening with that. No, I can assure you, two years from now, we won't be addressing it. And and what my view is, is that the dialogue needs to change. It's not about having a little bit more in order to, just to get by. We need to be absolutely getting to to the top of the NHS. And, and I think this is really important, broader than the NHS, to say that these outcomes are important to you. Because the societal outcomes of a failure of rehabilitation are incredibly costly, both in working days lost, services provided, benefits paid, and actually the the, the ways of uh, mitigating that are in our hands and the people that listen to this uh, this webcast. And and um, we need we we need to have ambition to really change this. And the, and the key, I think, is that if you look at this uh, rehabilitation historically, including musculoskeletal rehabilitation, um, it was not historically funded by the health service. It was funded by industry. It was funded by um, the services. It was funded by the police. It was funded by the National Coal Board. It was funded by the Department of Work and Pensions in their previous iteration. And... and it became an NHS responsibility and the NHS has thrown it down the sink. And um, I, I think the only way to win the real argument about rehabilitation is to un get the government to understand that they are spending 40 billion pounds a year 
roughly on medical benefits and yet if they invested in the rehabilitation of these patients you they could save considerable amounts of money 40 billion pounds a year in benefits is about a third of the nhs budget but these numbers aren't new john that the kind of the the economic the economic case for kind of msk rehab is this isn't this is a new why why isn't it being acted on these these figures are out there because you're absolutely right. And if you look at German provision of, of uh, health care and rehabilitation, admittedly, they have a higher proportion of their GDP spent on healthcare generally. But their rehabilitation is based on a return on investment of five euros for every one you put in. Consequently, it's a government and workers insurance is spent on it. And, and so uh, uh, my um view is that actually the people who are going to get the return of investment are not so much the nhs or there is a return on investment for that it is the department of work and pensions which is the government which is the government department with the largest expenditure of all uh, almost double that of the nhs and so so i think it's it's about changing that understanding about what rehabilitation is and how it affects society not just the individual and um, so, as you can see, I feel very passionate about this. I do think that message is not heard. That's the message we need to get across. We're wasting money paying people to stay at home when we could cure them. So you're saying, um, thinking that you know we might be barking up the wrong tree, going down the health, and we should be going down the work and pensions avenue to try and put it higher up their agenda. So well, I, think, I think the interesting thing is that every now and again, these other government departments suddenly realise that some of their some of their outlay is as a result of medical failure, if you wish. So, Ministry of Justice has realised that many of their prisoners are people who've had significant brain injuries. Wouldn't it be a more effective way to keep people out of prison? Would be to manage their brain injuries and their disinhibition. So even the Ministry of Justice have been thinking about that and be looking at studies in that area. Um, you can argue around education, you can argue around you can argue around DWP. It, it needs a sea change in the concept of what rehabilitation does. And I think that argument is, um, it needs to be had at government level. If we if we think the NHS is going to solve this, then then tell me, and I have spent the best part of three months trying to find out where, tell me what the plan is for the rehabilitation of COVID patients, some 20,000 people have been admitted into hospital. You know, there has been money available for Nightingale hospitals, increased PPE, and a variety of other acute services. I have not seen a single pound go into, no, that's wrong. I have seen a few pounds go into rehabilitation, but you know what? what is the NHS overarching strategy for that? Well, I think, I think that, that John hit the, the nail on the head there with um, there needs to be a strategy. And that, that's, that's, the, that's the single biggest problem right now. Now, things are happening, as I said earlier. I don't know if, if, if John and Graham were around when, when I spoke initially, but um, that take that have taken years and decades are happening in weeks and months. Um, I, I can't disagree with, with very much this, and I'm going to resist the urge to repeat any of it. What I am going to say is that um, 
we have to we have to solve the stuff in the that's been relegated to the too hard column and that and that effectively in the alliance that was one of the very first things we're very clear that the data must be mandatory it must be even though we can identify what that national data set should include that it must come from in order to have teeth it must come from them um, so we're pushing hard for it to be collected. We are at the table, and I'm talking collectively as the alliance. So this is multi-professional, multi-patient organization. Um, and so it, it's key to, to, to what needs to address the situation. We cannot um, drive improvement if we only count people, for example, as far as their acute treatment. Um, we have to have an interest in using the assessments to show need and outcomes um, and take it across from acute into community. We're part of the working group with NHS England, with UK Rock, with other, with other stakeholders. Um, and, and the bit about, absolutely, I mean, in, in a sense, the gap um, which is actually something that the Alliance highlighted um, to, to NHS thing. And, and so they're now coming around the table was really um, what falls through between um, acute and social care. So um, I can't say, I can't say a whole lot more, but the conversations are happening and they are critical. My, my, my comments would, would be though, and, and picking up on, on John's point, and, and I know John, as NCD for rehab, try, try this artist for two or three years, is who, who, whoever has the influence at high levels isn't succeeding. Um, and and we, we can all try and work out who that is. But it's NHS England who, who are going to control the, 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 the budgets and, and the policy. Uh, and there's just not enough uh, or successful influence there. And, and, and if, if the alliance is successful, fantastic. But if it isn't, we, we've got to work out what the problem is. And, and, and one of the really interesting things is if you look at the COVID-19 response and look at all the key people advising there, uh, Keith Willits, um, there's, there's quite a number. If you actually look at their professional background, they're nearly all surgeons, which is mm. fascinating, really. And I don't want to get political, but but if, if you look at decisions to discharge patients into care home, um, I, w I would suggest the understanding of the community at NHS England is extremely poor. Uh, and, and if I'd been sat there and that was being discussed, I would be immediately saying, because I've got a GP background, what the hell are we doing putting people into care homes? So my point is that that's, that's where these decisions are happening. And, and it's surgically dominated. It's hospital doctor dominated. Um, we, we, we've got to get a voice there. And if we can't get a voice there, it's, it's higher political Everyone listening to this has to go to their MPs, um, and, and we, we we have to start getting an interest at a very high level to make a change. This is very England centric. It's quite interesting, but if you look at Scotland, Wales, they're a strong they're in a strong position to lead the new strategy. They've got. AHP leads that are in a, this is all in the last few weeks. So I know there's years of history, but as I say, you know, the march is now and, um, the moment's now and, and, and it's accelerated. It's accelerated in a way that nobody could have ever predicted or imagined. So we move together. This is, this is further ahead. There may be lots of other things happening, but this is further ahead and more coordinated than, than anything else around. And so we work together. We, we joined those asks and we use this as an opportunity, not because it's a new problem, but because people are actually listening right now because they need the solutions and because actually it's dominated the news agenda and they're not calling it rehab. They're calling it recovery. 
Um, mm. and, and that's how they're digesting it. But we know what people mean. Well, I, you know, I look forward to the success of that, Sarah. Um, and, and, I look forward you know, to all of us being part of it. Well, yeah, but I would make a point that all of us aren't part of it, um, you know, so. But we all I, can be. Okay. Well, I look forward to the invite. <laughs> so we are coming to to a close. We've just got the last, uh, you know, four or five minutes now. Um, and, I mean, we haven't done many of the questions that's posed, but I think we have, when I've just scroll, scrolled down my eyes, I think most of the issues that have been posed have been addressed by some of the conversations we've had between ourselves. Um, I think now thinking about the where we are um, and where we're going to go to, have um, we got any final thoughts or any sound bites that we want to deliver um, about how we envisage things going forward? Um, don't know who wants to go first. I'll give it a go if you want. Yeah, I, I mean, just, I guess picking up, summarising some of the points I've made. I, th I think digital will be at the front end. Um, I think as as clinicians, we should expect and absolutely expect patients will walk through the door who, who are suited to our competencies and skills. That will have been predetermined before they walk through the door. So you need to think about what, what you have to offer. And the key thing I would say is what do you offer in terms of value for money? in terms of rehabilitation skills, because if it's not you, then there may be someone else who's, who's better value. And remember, value is about cost and effectiveness. So how much do I cost and, and, and how effective am I? And I need to demonstrate that with data. Thank you, Graham. Uh, I'll touch on in that, uh, if we if we want people to be better at self-led, it's not about telling people the the good and bad side of doing rehab or not doing rehab, because humans are irrational. Uh, we don't make decisions. We don't make great decisions for future thinking about our health and well-being. We're highly irrational, but we're very irrational in very predictable ways. So we know we can design strategies that overcome this irrationality. And I think a lot of that is around giving people more choice and options within their healthcare or the, the what the community can offer them in terms of management. Thank you. Sarah? Sarah? Um, yeah. Um, well, Nelson Mandela said it's always it's always impossible until it's done. So I guess I'd, I'd, I'd leave us all with the thought that hold on to that as we make this happen. And Boris said, let's get it done. <laughs> I, I, would, I wouldn't uh, even pretend to comment on that comparison. I'll leave that with you, Graham. <laughs> um, and John, are you there? Yeah, um, I would say that data is really important but that as Sarah says that data needs to be determined and driven by the NHS itself I would say that we need to have a, a broader dialogue about how we fund rehabilitation that this isn't just an NA, uh, this isn't just a health service outcome that this needs to be funded um, much more extensively um, and needs to have funding from government departments who really see what their return on investment is um, because if if we rely on NHS and particularly the NHS commissioning structure so it stands at the moment we will be doing exactly the same thing 
in 10 years' time. Um, so I think data is important. I think new strands of money are important. It is entirely possible to do this. And there are whole nations which do this much more effectively than us because they have a concept which they believe in. And at the moment, this nation doesn't believe in rehabilitation, so we don't fund it. Let's hope that COVID is the catalyst to make that change. And one final thought from me is another quote. Um, All great changes are preceded by chaos. So uh, and we don't have to have it figured out um, to move forward. It's just about taking one step at a time. So I think we are making some inroads. We need to be perhaps more powerful, more influential and more stronger and more united um, across all specialisms to actually make that happen. So. Many thanks to all the panellists today. Huge apologies for the technical issues that um, that happened, particularly for, uh, for John. Um, but I think we had some very interesting debate and um, look forward to meeting all of you in person, hopefully one day. Thank you, Thank you very much, Emma. Have a good day. Thank you. So there you go, covered some amazing ground within there and I hope that it brought some solution focused ideas as well as um, talking through some of the issues that are going to be faced with rehabilitation. Thanks to all the speakers involved and uh, doing really well with regards to uh, managing a, a new platform and a difficult topic as well. So hopefully you've got a lot out of it and we can all move forwards with regards to rehabilitation in general, but also of COVID-19 patients, which obviously is of utmost paramount at this time. So once again, just direct you to all the therapy live recordings, head to therapistlearning.com and you can find them there. And we will be running further conferences in the future. You've heard it here and keep your eye out for those and the details because you will not want to miss out the tickets. We did in the end sell out for therapy live and we expect that that will happen again on the next ones. So keep an eye out on our social media feeds. You can follow us at TPM podcast and um, we also have the exciting news of having a brand new website so head to physio-matters.com and you can get all the information from all of our projects and work and plus some extra bonus bits there you can join what we're calling the quid club and you'll get extra even more bonuses if you couldn't handle what we release already Um, so we will see you out next month when we have another episode of the physio matters podcast and it just leaves me to do the cheesy sign out which i always enjoy doing because i don't get to do them that often you've been listening to the physio matters podcast discussing physio matters because physio matters bye for now